good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to our Space Power Forum today. We're really pleased that Major General Deanna Burt uh, could join us. Uh, General Burt is uh, currently the Commander, Combined Force Space Component Command, U.S. Space Command, as well as the Deputy Commander, Space Operations Command, U.S. Space Force, operating out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. Now in this capacity, she leads more than 17,000 joint and combined personnel with a mission to plan, integrate, coordinate, uh, and assess global space operations to deliver combat space capabilities. Prior to her current role, General Burt was the Director of Operations and Communications, Headquarters Space Operations Command at Peterson Air Force Base. So welcome, General Burt, and uh, thanks very much for making the time to join us today. Um, I'd like to start off by giving you an opportunity to make a few opening remarks on your top priorities and the critical challenges that your team is facing. So over to you. No, thank you, Mr. General Deptula. I really appreciate uh, you and the Mitchell Institute for continuing to put on these uh, space power forums. Uh, I think they're really important to get out uh, the concerns and issues that we have out in the space domain today. Uh, and into the future and your advocacy and the Mitchell Institute's advocacy are, are critical for us to move those capabilities forward. So thank you uh, for what you do. Uh, I am honored to be here today on behalf of both of my hats. Uh, I wear two hats. I am a joint hat as we talked about with the Commander uh, Combined Forces Space Component Command working for United States Space Command uh, as a direct component. I'm the Fight Tonight Commander uh, for uh, US Space Command as well as in my service hat as the Headquarters Space Operations Command Deputy Commander uh, working at organized training equip on the service side. So it really makes sense that, that I'm dual hatted in those roles because on the service side, I'm able to look at what are the capabilities and things that we need for fight tonight and how do we manage those and sustain those day in and day out for the United States Space Force. Uh, and then to then apply those capabilities to the combatant commander uh, who brings combat effects to the other combatant commands, uh, not only to their combatant commands, but as well as in our own area of responsibility at US Space Command which is 100 kilometers to infinity. So two distinct roles, two distinct organizations that I have the pleasure to work for, uh, but do great work day in and day out, bringing space to the multi-domain fight. Uh, things that are on our plate right now that we're working on, and, and these really match to General Dickinson's five priorities. First and foremost is knowing our enemy. So Intel is the baseline for everything that we do. Uh, and part of that here at CIFSIC that I do is space domain awareness. Uh, we run the space picture. How do we know who's blue, red, gray, uh, intent, things that are happening on orbit and to keep the domain free and safe for all uh, to transit and operate uh, because space has become such a critical part to our American way of life and our American way of war. Uh, the second entity uh, that we work on is building the command uh, to compete and win. Uh, so day in and day out, we're working at all the space capabilities that we bring to the fight uh, to support the other domains. So from GPS, military SATCOM, missile warning, uh, all the Space Force enhancement capabilities uh, that bring the fight and help enhance the fight in the multi-domain arena, but also how do we deny the enemy the same uh, when we talk about space electronic warfare uh, and how we deny the enemy their use uh, of space uh, in a fight downrange. Uh, maintaining key relationships, uh, the really important part of my job here at CIFSIC is the relationships that we have with our coalition partners. Uh, we have both exchange and liaison officers uh, on our ops floors uh, working day in and day out to connect us to the other space operations centers that are uh, growing around the world. So think the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia uh, as the big three who also have space operations centers. And we day in and day out 
uh, integrate with those op centers and pass information on threats uh, on the domain uh, and any concerns that we might have in force protection or support to each of those countries as well as their support to us in the US. Uh, and lastly, uh, the other relationships and, and growing more every day is our commercial integration cell. How do we integrate with the 10 commercial partners that we have agreements with uh, that continue to work with us every day uh, to help us bring on more combat capability, uh, help us deconflict. Uh, as we know, SpaceX is launching more and more uh, every day. We just uh, also partnership with NASA. We just helped the crew return, Crew Dragon return on Saturday night. That was an amazing feat. Uh, the first nighttime landing since 1968 splashdown uh, was amazing feat. We provided the rescue forces out of U.S. Space Command, and I was the, blessed to be the commander in charge of those rescue forces uh, as we recovered that crew. So those partnerships, both with the coalition, civil with NASA, and commercial uh, with our commercial integration cell, all are the key things that I at CIFSIC bring to the joint fight and to the U.S. Space Command commander uh, to meet his goals and intent. Uh, and then lastly, as mentioned, uh, maintaining digital superiority. So we've heard this both on the service side with General Raymond talking about where digital service as the United States Space Force, how do we leverage artificial intelligence, uh, automation uh, and capabilities to make our missions more efficient so that we can focus uh, the blue suit manpower on the things uh, that are focused on warfighting. How do we make that, uh, leverage those digital capabilities? We do the same on the US Space Command side. Not only how do we leverage the mission, but also how do we protect the mission? Uh, we can't do space without cyber. Uh, day in and day out, we're talking to satellites virtually, so cybersecurity, making sure our systems uh, can be reached uh, and communicated with are critical to what we do every day. So that digital superiority, both from a cybersecurity defending our own systems, uh, as well as leveraging uh, commercial and other capabilities moving forward uh, to better automate the mission are critical. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the things that I do and care about, and I'm more than happy uh, to have a discussion on any of those things that interest you, sir, or our audience. Well, thanks very much for that uh, context, uh, uh, Deanna. And, uh, and also thanks for everything that your team is doing uh, to uh, work and defend the space domain. Um, so as you suggest, let's jump in and dig a little deeper into some of the topics that you uh, uh, raised. Now, uh, first point or comment or question, uh, coinciding with the release of his strategic vision document Joel Dickinson wrote an op-ed in The Hill that I'd really encourage everyone to read. Uh, in it, he said, and I quote, United States Space Command faces a unique dilemma in that we can't plan for future conflicts based on how we fought previous conflicts, even if we were inclined to do so. Rather, we are preparing for the war not yet fought, unquote. So in other words, it sounds like Spacecom's preparing for a future where space is a no kidding warfighting domain like any other. So to the extent that you can share, what does Spacecom envision future conflict will look like in, from, and to space? No, that, that's a great question. And, and I would say first and foremost, space is a warfighting domain and is identified in our national security strategy uh, and everything moving forward. It is a warfighting domain. It's not going to be, it is. There are threats today on orbit. Uh, you've heard both General Dickinson uh, and General Raymond both testified to the SJ-17 robotic arm on orbit, to the Russian and Chinese uh, anti-satellite capabilities that can be launched to take satellites out in low Earth orbit. Uh, we've talked about uh, the Russian uh, capabilities, uh, Cosmos, that was shadowing a high-value asset on orbit. I mean, they are there, and they are there today. So this isn't something that's coming. Uh, it's a reality. So the question becomes, uh, and again, General Dickinson's point of a war not yet fought. 
Uh, I've been in the military 28 years and I've been a space operator that entire time. When I came into the Air Force, it was just post Desert Storm, but we would classify our first space war. Uh, and really, it wasn't a space war, it was a space enabled war. So how do we bring space capabilities to the joint multi-domain fight? So the one correction, if I would give my very smart boss who is way smarter than me, General Dickinson is, yes, the war that is not fought is in the domain itself. But we have fought wars where space is involved in providing those combat capabilities to the joint multi-domain fight. And when we go to war, we go to war as a whole of government, not just one domain or another. I think where the boss is trying, General Dickinson is trying to point is that now we're talking about a war that extends into the space domain, 100 kilometers and above in his area of responsibility. Uh, we see this in gray space competition. Uh, you know, we look at both China and Russia as threats, uh, Russia continuing to try to modernize, but China actually being the pacing threat of what we look at. Uh, so I think what we're concerned about now is how do we in gray space competition, and we're competing every day uh, on orbit, as I mentioned, those threats are there and tests are being performed. Uh, how do we continue uh, to work around those? How do we characterize those, build patterns of life, look at the intelligence and those capabilities uh, and prepare that if, if those were to turn offensive or to turn on us, how would, we, how would we deal with that? How would we defend the vital space capabilities that the other domains come to depend on? This isn't space for space's sake. This is to be able to protect and defend the capabilities that our other uh, brothers and sisters in arms require. Uh, because again, it's frankly, as I said earlier, our American way of life and our American way of war that depend on these capabilities day in and day out. Uh, so I think what we have to start thinking about is uh, in the past, there's been concerns uh, about do we get into a space race? Uh, do we have uh, a tit for tat strategy that we start building as we did with the Russians uh, during the Cold War? Um, I would argue a position of strength uh, anything, war fighting is war fighting, offense, defense, all those capabilities are required. Uh, and how do you deter? You have to have a credible threat. You have to be able to communicate that threat and you have to be able to execute uh, costs on the enemy. So how do we do that? Um, I think we are trying to figure out what's the best options, uh, how we work that with our coalition partners uh, in norms and behaviors uh, and those others who operate in the domain. Uh, you can have in every domain, you have very high end offensive capabilities. So think the F-35 and the air domain. Just because I have the F-35 and the air domain doesn't mean I use it uh, outside of the laws of armed conflict or certain ROE and how we engage in rules of engagement around the world. The same would be said for space offensive capabilities. If you're going to create capabilities to protect and defend your resources, how are things managed day to day? What is too close or what is considered uh, hostile action? And the other domains, those things are defined. Uh, I think we're working really hard with the community to define what is responsible behavior. And then if I know what responsible behavior is, how can I then call out irresponsible behavior and then get to criteria that would define what is hostile intent, particularly in light of the threats uh, that are being launched. So I'll, I'll give you some examples. Uh, in today's world, uh, we have some of the most powerful weapons known as nuclear weapons. We have norms about how we test them, how we talk about them. We're very transparent about those weapon systems, very destructive, uh, but they are an active deterrent. Uh, and the, when we take them out and we test them and we prove that they're capable, uh, those things are messages to our enemies, uh, our potential enemies, adversaries of, of what we could bring to bear if asked to. Uh, I think the same holds true for space. How are we going to build capability that if we are tested and a war extends into space, not what we want to happen, but if it does through a position of strength, what, how are we going to impose costs? I would also argue that it doesn't have to be, those costs do not have to be imposed in the domain itself. We go to, as a whole of government, go to war. So these could be attacks on ground systems, 
uh, by air or land forces or naval forces. It doesn't necessarily have to be a space attack, uh, requires a space attack in kind. So it's how do we bring that full strategy together for deterrence uh, in order to deter the enemy from a war that could extend into space uh, that we keep those capabilities from others. So I think that's really when he talks about the war not fought, how do we do that uh, moving forward in the domain, working with our joint partners and our coalition partners on first building those norms of behavior, responsible behaviors, what's a hostile act or not. And then when those acts are committed, uh, how would we impose costs? And again, across a multi-domain fight and a whole of government, where would we impose a cost on a country that it took the fight to the space domain? Uh, and how would we continue to try to build the resiliency and protection working with our coalition and commercial partners, uh, as well as with our own capabilities in the service side uh, to ensure we had the capabilities available uh, for the joint fight? Uh, but all of those things uh, have to come together. A lot of work being done both on the service side to organize, train, and equip that, uh, as well as on the combatant command side uh, to make sure uh, that we are working through how we would conceptually work in a multi-domain fight with our other COCOMs and coalition partners. Uh, very good. Uh, thanks for that comprehensive answer. Here's a bit of a follow-up. Um, you now have a perspective from both the Space Force and the U.S. Space Command, and there are many uh, users of space capabilities. Could you uh, kind of talk to the audience about how do space capabilities integrate or fight from both a U.S. Space Command perspective and then separately, for example, from another combatant command's perspective, from an Indo-PACOM uh, perspective? No, I absolutely. And I think there's um, capabilities that are put in place that support regionally. So I, I, I'll step back a little bit with U.S. Space Command. So when you look at U.S. Space Command as a combatant command, it's really a hybrid. Um, it's a functional or a geographic combatant command because it's required to provide those space effects, combat space effects to the globe and to all of his other fellow combatant commanders. But at the same time, he also has a geographic area of responsibility, 100 kilometers to infinity. So he's so again, he's that hybrid model of being a, a geographic combatant commander and a functional. So it, it makes those relationships interesting. I, I think that's a lot of that that interaction with the theater comes through two aspects. Uh, one is through the integrated planning elements we have at each of the combatant commands, uh, and that would be uh, personnel that are O6s, uh, joint uh, folks that are on each of the staffs. Uh, growing up to about 20 folks on each of the combatant command staffs that would then be integrated into the targeting and the planning at each of the combatant commands to understand what space effects are they relying on as part of their campaign plan and how would we continue to try to, to provide that uh, through all phases of conflict uh, as well as if we are being contested in the domain itself and our area of responsibility. Uh, and then understanding what the priorities are for those combatant commanders. Additionally, as I said, General Dickinson has his own air responsibility and will also have uh, criteria and things that are important to him in order to sustain and protect and defend those capabilities. So in some cases, uh, I would ask, is it, are we going to take uh, one for the team and take a hit on a satellite or are we going to protect and defend that capability? Would we try to uh, evade or take the satellite out of service in order to protect it to fight another day? Um, those are all things that have to be coordinated and worked with the theater. Additionally, as I take one capability, so let's say if I'm fighting uh, in the Ukraine uh, and we had things that were uh, pretty uh, exciting there for a few weeks uh, in the Ukraine, if things were to light up in the Ukraine, what would I give Commander USUCOM? What would we give them? And who would be the loser in another theater, say CENTCOM or Indopaycom, in order to provide that extra satellite communications bandwidth or the other capabilities uh, for directed 
precision navigation and timing and flex power. What were the things I would give that combatant commander that I would have to take from another? And how would we coordinate that between the combatant commands? So the integrated planning elements are working that with us at each of the COCOMs and they're also talking to each other. Uh, the second element is we still have the director of space forces at each of the combined air operation centers at the US uh, Air Force level. Uh, that is going through some review on the Space Force side of how we're gonna force present now as a new service in the United States Space Force. Uh, but today we still continue to work with the DER Space Force along with the integrated planning elements to make sure both from the service and the combatant command level uh, that those capabilities are being deconflicted. Uh, those space support requests that are coming directly to us are being satisfied uh, and we're getting uh, the capabilities we need. Uh, Secondly, this is always any fight that we go to uh, as the United States is going to be done with partners and who are the coalition and the people coming with us. And, and again, CIFSIC here is going to be the folks who try to coordinate uh, our coalition capabilities. Uh, there may be capabilities in a given AOR that a uh, coalition partner has. Uh, for example, in Indo-PACOM, it could be an Australian capability that provides us something additional that we don't have. How would we coordinate that support uh, and share that information uh, would be critical moving forward. Uh, and then lastly, the, the commercial piece, as I said, a lot of players, uh, SATCOM seems to be the area, especially in the narrow band or uh, UHF frequencies, uh, tends to be the most contested and congested for a satellite communications capability. We would work really hard with our commercial integration cell and commercial partners to find ways to get more commercial capability to the fight uh, as need be. But again, these are all driven by the threat at hand what the combatant commander that we are supporting needs. And if the fight extends into space, then how are we deconflicting those capabilities, both with what's needed in that com combatant command and the terrestrial forces, and what must we retain because the fight has extended into space and how do we coordinate that uh, between the two COCOMs? Um, very good. Now I know it would open up a whole nother bucket of worms, but it's also interesting. I mean, a, a, a question here too is when does when do the NRO assets chop to the combatant commands uh, uh, control? Because that's- so we, we, We've been doing a lot know. of work there. That one's, that one's, I won't open up the whole can, but I'll, I'll crack it a little. Um, I think uh, one of the things we've talked about with all of our intelligence partners, not just the National Reconnaissance Office, but the National Reconnaissance Office is obviously the, has the lion's share of space capability. Um, it's how do we protect and defend those capabilities? And just as I described that we struggle with, when would I say that I need to move that satellite or I need to try to protect it and take it out of service? I know I'm, I'm now not providing a service to the other terrestrial forces. The NRO, National Reconnaissance Office, feels the exact same way. They're providing critical ISR uh, intelligence to the fight. And if you ask them to turn off or move, um, what does that mean to the fight on the ground? And so there's that always that tension of, of continuing service and taking one for the team or do I move it and save the satellite to fight another day? Um, we have talked about in, in many Loki's Gambit exercises, it's an NRO US Space Command exercise where we talk about protect and defend. Uh, that's more done with the National Space Defense Center. Uh, I also participate as CIFSIC, but it's really on the NSDC side. <clears throat> and at what heightened threat levels uh, would you uh, look at how you would respond and protect and defend? Uh, for my mission, I have high value assets as well. So we talk about when I'm alone and unafraid, no defender, and when I have a defender. Uh, this is very similar to the air domain when you talk about the AWACS and the tanker. So at some point, the mission commander says, hey, the bad guys crossed the line. You guys need to slide. Well, slide, I'm still in mission. I'm still doing my AWACS mission, but I get out of range of the enemy. 
Another point, the mission commander could call me and say, hey, they busted the other line. You need to scram. You need to physically stop doing mission and run as fast as you can away because we need to protect that AWACS high value asset. So those same concepts hold in the space domain. The kinematics are different, obviously, uh, but how we do slide scram, uh, when we have uh, suspect bandits and hostile action, how are those defined? And each satellite based on what it can and can't do and how it moves are gonna define uh, if I'm alone and unafraid, when are those triggers that I would be making those decisions working with US Space Command? Or if I have a defender, how is the communication between the defender and the high value asset gonna happen uh, to be able to make that orchestration occur? And again, that's all happening out of the National Space Defense Center when you talk about when there's a defender. When there's not a defender and you're alone and unafraid, both the NRO and I are having to work through what are our tactics and techniques uh, to defend those assets without a defender. So, so this is definitely a conversation we are having. Uh, your part that you said about the worms, again, is the, the conversation about chopping over and taking direction from. Uh, and I think in a high threat environment, they absolutely want their resources protected, but it's understanding exactly when that is and, and how we communicate that. Uh, they are amazing partners. And again, we could not get our job done day in and day out without the National Reconnaissance Office and that teamwork between the three op centers. So you have the, the NROC, the National Reconnaissance Office uh, Operations Center, the NSDC and the CIFSIC CSPOC are three organizations that talk to each other continuously every day uh, to keep seamlessly working that command and control across all of our space enterprise. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, it was recently reported that the Space Force is coming to an agreement with the Army and the Navy on which units are going to move over to the new space service. And then at the same time, the Army's recently approved plans for a future tactical space layer that seems to have, not seems, <clears throat> it does have a very organic old style feel to it that strays away from the vision of JADC2. Furthermore, there's still more than 60 organizations across the government that have some role or say in national security space. So from the SpaceCom perspective, how are all the various space elements being brought together to maximize our nation's space power? And what are your thoughts on what needs to change in the future? So we are very excited about the service components, uh, both from the Army and the Navy that are coming over. And again, those decisions are being made at a much higher level uh, with General Raymond uh, and with the other service chiefs on what needs to be in the Space Force. But I, again, I want, this is a warfighter forum. Everyone on this warfighter forum, if I were to ask you in 1947, when we stood up the United States Air Force, did we say that no one could have airplanes? We didn't. I mean, we still have aircraft that support the carrier strike group and defend the carrier strike group. There are other services who have airplanes uh, and airborne assets that are not the Air Force. So I would say the same in the Space Force. We're trying to find that balance of what space capabilities need to be retained with maneuver forces and, and to protect the force versus what are the things uh, that are purely in the domain or have a global effect or, or impact global combatant commanders uh, that need to be in the Space Force. And so that's been the dialogue that's ongoing. So I get to your point that there are 60 plus organizations involved in space and how do we streamline and make that efficient? Uh, I would say probably in 1947, we were having that same conversation about the air domain. Um, and even in the end, there were still ended up being airplanes and other things uh, in other services. So I, I'm not gonna say I'm naive enough not to believe that there are certain capabilities in protect, protection of the maneuver force so think uh, the Army talks about the multi-domain task force. Um, 
they are having a jammers that would move with the force on the ground with the multi-task force brigade on the ground to help protect that force from any incoming UAVs, other things uh, that could attack them from the air. Uh, the same for the Navy. How do I create uh, space electronic warfare capabilities to defend the ship? Those are the same kinds of concepts. Now those need to be coordinated uh, and de-conflicted with US Space Command, but we're not gonna say that, that those concepts don't exist where the services could have those uh, space capabilities, or as you mentioned, this low uh, proliferated, proliferated LEO uh, capability as well. So I think the goal for us is to figure out how to bring it together, to synchronize across the enterprise, to understand what capabilities are being retained by the services, what are being offered to US Space Command, and then how do we command and control and orchestrate those so that they are not either fratting each other uh, or we're double tapping targets if we don't need to. So I think working through that uh, is gonna be where we go. I think on the service side, General Raymond has worked very hard uh, to figure out how to consolidate all the many players uh, in the acquisition world in particular uh, that are involved in uh, the space acquisition processes. Uh, we stand up this summer, the Space Systems Command, SSC, that will replace Space and Missile Systems Center. Uh, and I think you will see we're working really hard to try to consolidate all that. Uh, I was really happy to see Mr. Kendall's nomination, and I hope uh, he does well in confirmation. Uh, very talented uh, gentleman and understands our business and the space world uh, from an acquisition perspective and, and, and will be a great add to the team. Uh, but how we get to everyone working together um, in, in a concerted effort and that we work to make sure uh, we're not, you know, people are double tapping on the same kinds of concerns. We do this with our coalition partners as well. I think we have to think about what can they bring to the fight uh, from their capabilities, as well as what foreign military sales do we want to do with our coalition partners? How do we look at rideshare and, and being able to put our capabilities on some of their satellites or their launch vehicles? Uh, those are all ways in the coalition, I think, that will also make us stronger moving forward. Uh, and then lastly, I think the commercial enterprise is doing some amazing things and how we can leverage their technology uh, is going to be uh, huge. Uh, the cost of launch has gone down tremendously, which has allowed us to do quite a bit more uh, on the satellite side as well. We're starting to see miniaturization and, and standardized buses, the digital age with software-based capabilities, both ground, satellite, and receiver capabilities have all been uh, exploding. So I think all of those are good things, but how do we harness that back to your point and how do we come to a, a consolidated answer? One I think is on the service side as we uh, consolidate that acquisition piece from the organized training equip. And then on the combatant command side, when we talk about US Space Command and the person responsible for warfighting, how do they consolidate all those capabilities across the COCOMs and whatever service retained to be able to uh, orchestrate that to, to fight and win in the domain? Yeah, no, that's very good. I think you're spot on in the context of it's going to take a bit of time uh, to work that integration piece. Uh, but there's also a balance if you wait too long and bureaucracy digs in. Um, I'll push back just a little bit in terms of, you know, you mentioned uh, the Army needing its own satellites to work the maneuver piece, but the Army doesn't, when we go to a fight, it's a joint fight. And so it's a joint task force commander that's doing uh, the work. I mean, the Air Force doesn't have its own organic constellation of satellites to do strike targeting and planning. It relies on the integrated joint in national systems. And the question is, why does the United States Army as a separate service need to have its own organic constellation? I, you don't have to answer that. We've got other things to move, but it's a point I wanna make is that it's kind of interesting that the United States Air Force doesn't have its own organic satellite systems 
but the Army wants to have its own. So I think it's something that needs to be a, a, a discussed in further detail. So let's move on to China. We've heard that China's space enterprise is the pacing threat. And while Russia and others continue to develop their ability to hold our uh, space assets at, at risk, um, there's also the proliferation of commercial space that presents its own challenges in terms of space domain awareness. Uh, for example, commercial companies now run the three largest constellations of satellites. So how is Spacecom approaching an increasingly competitive, congested, and contested space domain? So I, I think the, the first and foremost, and it's uh, General Dickinson's number one integrated priorities list uh, concern is space domain awareness. Uh, and space domain awareness is, is faceted in, in a few ways. One, first and foremost, I mean, there's about 30,000 objects that are on orbit today, and about 4,000 of those are active satellites. So part of that is making sure we're doing space situational awareness, sharing agreements with various countries and coalition partners to bring that data in as quickly as possible so that we have a shared picture of the domain itself and to build those uh, foundational, where is everything in the domain in order to deconflict and avoid things running into each other, understanding what is a live satellite, what is a piece of junk or debris uh, and how do we do that? Secondly, would be creating norms of how do you not create debris in the first place? Uh, and I think that comes back to rules and norms of behavior. How do we get to when you launch a capability that you don't leave needless debris in the domain or in orbit if you don't need to? Uh, and secondly, it's when you design your satellite at end of life that it, it can be contained and doesn't explode or destruct itself in some way. Uh, and that you also leave enough bingo fuel for all my air guys. You know, what's the amount of fuel I need to leave on a satellite in order to push it into a disposal orbit? Uh, at super synchronous orbit, uh, super geo, or to burn it into the atmosphere so that it uh, is burned up uh, coming back in or put into the water. Uh, that will be uh, how we move forward in that responsible behavior of how you avoid debris in the future. Uh, and again, not doing tests that would, as we saw in 2007 with the Chinese, where they blew their dead uh, weather satellite up with an anti-satellite munition, uh, which caused about 3,000 uh, pieces of debris, which we are still tracking to this day uh, 14 years later. So a, a lot of uh, not creating debris in the first place and how do we create those norms of responsible behavior. Uh, and then lastly, it's really working with the coalition commercial partners as well. So what's interesting is in other domains, you know, everyone understands the space picture or the air picture, for example, because you have the Federal Aviation Administration and you have international uh, entities, commercial entities that track all the aircraft around the globe and provide that picture to all aircraft uh, pilots flying in the domain and operating in the domain. We need the same capability within uh, the space domains. So we've talked about the Department of Commerce on behalf of uh, the United States government of how it's going to be the civil entity that does space traffic management uh, for the peaceful day-to-day -day movement of traffic in the domain. We have that today as the Department of Defense because we were the only ones doing it. Our goal is to shift uh, and give that to the Department of Commerce and allow them to do that day-to-day. What that will allow us to do then is to really focus our efforts on understanding the domain, who is in the domain, the patterns of life, the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, the things we need to collect uh, on the things that are of interest to us. And that day-to-day -day traffic management uh, would go to the Department of Commerce. So it's all of those things have to happen within space domain awareness uh, to normalize the space domain as we've seen both in air, land, and sea and how we have have normalized traffic for the day-to-day -day peaceful environment, as well as if a war extends into space, then having the capabilities ready to be laser focused 
uh, on identifying those threats uh, and dealing and executing to win against those threats. Um, very good. Um, moving on to a bit of a different uh, topic, but <clears throat> one that uh, certainly encompasses many of the things that you said. Uh, this year's global lightning exercise involved uh, Spacecom, Stratcom, and UCOM. And it also involved multiple international partners, including Australia, Canada, and the UK. So what were some of your key takeaways from this exercise in terms of Spacecom's ability to coordinate with other COCOMs as well as um, our allied partners? So I, I, I want to make sure I, Global Lightning was a great opportunity and exercise. Unfortunately, due to COVID, uh, the US-UCOM play uh, was a response cell and really decreased about 30 days out of the exercise. Uh, but General Dickinson really pushed forward for us to continue to use that exercise as much as possible as US Space Command to really flesh out with our integrated planning elements across the command, uh, the other combatant commands, as well as with the directors of Space Forces and in-house within US Space Command to make that happen. Our coalition partners were also participating at each of their space operations centers. So we, we went through a lot of various threat scenarios uh, on how we would pass targeting and information, how we would do messaging, strategic messaging against threats, working with our coalition partners, as well as our commercial integration self played as we looked at resiliency issues, particularly as I mentioned earlier with satellite communications, how would we try to go get additional bandwidth working with our commercial partners uh, to fight through in a scenario that was UCOM based um, and, and provide that. So great opportunities uh, to communicate. Uh, lessons learned, we continue to make sure we're trying to talk at the five-eyed level uh, classifications that we can allow the maximum play from our coalition partners uh, across the board. Uh, in some cases, depending on the O plan, you may be in a US only kind of plan uh, or it's a no form plan. Uh, those are tough for us. Uh, our ops floor works every day at the five-eye level here at CIFSIC. Uh, so again, trying to make sure that we are uh, classifying properly and releasing that to our coalition partners is instrumental in their ability to play, uh, as well as to do strategic messaging and how we release threat information to them so that they can message uh, as they choose to in their country. Some are very vocal as we are about threats. Others uh, tend to take a more behind the scenes look, which is great. Uh, again, all means possible. Every coalition member comes to the table as they're comfortable participating. But that clearance level and being able to talk to them clearly at the right level uh, is what really enables uh, those relationships. So having to do that, uh, this particular exercise was a little more difficult, uh, but we worked very hard at getting to that. Uh, I would say across the board, how we're gonna force pre present US Space Command and the service are looking at, uh, you know, are the integrated planning elements the right uh, way that we employ and we do every day? Uh, but then also now with a new service, does the Space Force have a service force presentation to each of the COCOMs as well? And how does that play out? And how do those two entities talk to each other? Uh, standing up US Space Command and US Space Force within five months of each other uh, was pretty interesting because you can imagine uh, the US, what was then Air Force Space Command was largely involved in standing up US Space Command. Uh, and then to stand up a whole service uh, five months later uh, with some of the same people, for me, it was very exciting. I got to be at the epicenter of both of those, uh, but I would also tell you it stretched resources very thin uh, from human capital uh, that are in this business and have been space operators uh, for most of their careers uh, to be able to help work this. So I think that force presentation and getting to those efficiencies uh, about how we present were things we were investigating different options uh, within Global Lightning of how best to do that, both on the service and the COCOM side. Uh, so there's a lot of, of data that will be presented to both General Raymond and General Dickinson moving forward of how we force present. 
uh, here in our second years of both the service and the COCOM. Uh, but overall, a great exercise. Again, we continue to learn. We continue to train the joint staff at U.S. Space Command. Uh, again, recognizing it stood up from zero. It's about 400 people strong now, about a third of what it's supposed to be at about 1,200. So uh, it was a great learning opportunity. Coalition partners uh, fully engaged, uh, as well as with the commercial side of the house, uh, offering options and ways we can look at some of these tactical problems moving forward. But overall, great success. Well, thank you. Now, you've also been involved in drafting language to support uh, an international effort uh, to adopt rules and norms of behavior in space. You mentioned some of that in your opening comments. Uh, coincidentally, I believe today was a deadline to submit inputs to the UN for inclusion in a report to be viewed by the UN General Assembly this summer. Uh, what are you hoping to see come out of this effort and what's the impact on your ability to execute your mission? No, great question. First and foremost, I want to say that the State Department is lead on all things when we talk about um, rules and norms of behavior and diplomacy, working with other nations within the UN of how we do that. Department of Defense absolutely has a critical input to that of what, as you mentioned, what we would like to see. Uh, but really, our partners at State Department uh, and in policy are the ones who are going to make that happen. Uh, we are very excited that the UK uh, has been our a coalition partner that's been the lead of some of that language going to the UN. And we've been working uh, very closely with them on the military side of, of things we would consider. Uh, obviously, first and foremost, for all of these nations, it's the free and transparent use of the space domain is what we would like to see. So how does that translate uh, from a military perspective? Again, it's understanding what's in the domain, sharing data about the space picture. So when we talk about JADC2 and those common operational pictures, how do you have a picture of what's happening in the domain and that everybody is free and fair to operate uh, both for the wealth of their nation and commerce uh, as just well as day-to-day -day operations and providing those capabilities not only to their, to their nations but to their fielded forces. So how do you do that in a way that is very transparent uh, and very rules-based? And so debris causing events, again, how do we design capabilities such that we don't launch and create debris or while on orbit create debris? How do we do responsible testing? So I mentioned earlier about nuclear testing and how we do very transparent and rule-based ways we, we test nuclear weapons. How do we get something similar for testing in the space domain? Uh, obviously testing things that cause debris uh, or debris causing anti-satellite munitions, probably not a good idea. Um, we don't wanna create more debris, so probably not considered responsible. Uh, the second would be, do you, when you do testing on orbit, do you do testing? So I'll go to the, to the Tonopah or the test ranges at Edwards. When we test a new aircraft platform, we will go out on the range and in that very controlled airspace such that we don't hurt anyone else, we will do uh, engagements with that aircraft. We will run it through its paces. If we want to test it against uh, threat-based uh, replication from an aggressor. We do that, but we do that in a very controlled airspace and in a very safe way. And those are our own aircraft. We're not taking those test aircraft and going over to, let's say, Syria and testing against uh, other countries when we haven't fully accepted uh, and tested out that capability. We are seeing that on orbit, that there are test capabilities being put on orbit uh, as R&D that are then being tested in a way uh, against our assets before the capability is fully uh, checked out. And, and so that is a concern. Uh, is that a norm? Should you test against other people's capabilities before you've proven the capability yourself? Uh, how do we do that? What are those rules and norms of testing? Uh, 
Uh, and then transparency and, and talking about when we have uh, traffic management. So right now at CIFSIC, we track everything on orbit and when there's ever a potential conjunction. So think about when two things could exchange paint or hit each other. So two pieces of debris, really tough. We pretty much just sit and watch. Two dead objects, we pretty much have to sit and watch because they can't move. But if you have a live object, a piece of debris or a dead object, we are talking to that live oper owner operator for that satellite or capability and giving them real time that information and giving them the opportunity. We're not directing anyone, uh, but it's to share that information so that they can move uh, and avoid damage to their spacecraft. Two live objects, same thing. We would talk to both owner operators and have that discussion. Um, that open transparency and the ability to avoid collisions uh, and to, again, avoid creating more debris is what we're after so that everyone can have the free and fair use. Uh, that's kind of where we are. I think uh, other discussions will be how close is too close, getting one resource next to another, uh, you know, and, and how do we communicate what we're doing and why. Um, I, I think it's interesting in other domains, particularly with the Russians, we have uh, a high degree of communication. Uh, many of my air brothers and sisters will tell me, you know, we have bat phones uh, to the Russian government at the military level, uh, where we talk about from the CFAC level, uh, and other areas where we talk to each other, hey, that's a little too close, or hey, did you mean to do that before something escalates? Um, we don't have that same capability in the space domain, should we? So again, creating those rules and norms with the key space uh, faring nations of how do we communicate to each other? How do we communicate and respond? Uh, many times we will call people with conjunctions. So think China, Russia, we don't always get back that they received the message other than sometimes working through our State Department partners to say, yes, they've received the message, they read it. That, that's typically the extent we know and we wait and see what happens if they move or they respond. Uh, but it sure would be nice to get a phone call back or to have that interaction uh, to know that, hey, I, I got your message, I received it, I'm, I'm working it. Uh, we have that in other domains. It's how do we create that, that level of transparency and what is responsible behavior so that then when someone acts irresponsible, now we understand what irresponsible looks like, but you can't define irresponsible if you haven't defined responsible in the behavior that you hope to see in the domain, if that makes sense. It sure but does. Our State Department brothers are all over that, and uh, I look forward to what comes out of the UN. Very good. Now, in order to bring innovation to bear in the warfighting arena, um, we're seeing that the high classification of space concepts and capabilities sometimes chokes off participation by universe of companies and industry. Uh, in some regards, it's a catch-22. In many cases, you, you already need to have a facility clearance to even submit a proposal. Um, one company explained uh, to me that they actually bought another company just to get their facility clearance to enter the military space market. So at your end, um, is there a problem with overclassification of all things space? And if so, um, how do you think it can be addressed? So I, I would say that both uh, General Raymond and General Dickinson have both voiced that we, we definitely have an overclassification problem. Uh, what I want to try to explain to the audience, though, is to help you understand a little bit about culturally why that happens um, or how it happened to this point. Uh, in a peacetime domain, uh, you know, we had lots of great capability. Uh, things would get launched. And when you launch something in the space domain, it's not like, so I'll go back to my air example. When I'm building a new aircraft, I build 10 of them and we take them out to Edwards and we run them around and, and maybe we crash a couple. Uh, we, we hope not to do that, but it could happen. And, and we really ring them out, right? And we go, okay, we go back to the vendor and say, hey, 
this, this, and this don't meet specs and we need you to update them. And we'll go through iterations of the, the aircraft multiple times until we get to what we say, okay, that's now ready for mass production and we produce. Well, that's not the case in the space domain. In some cases, we're only buying six to 10 of a given satellite. And the very first satellite is the first article that goes up and it gets tested uh, and we run it through its paces, but that now is our first operational satellite for that particular constellation. So there's not, there's not as, as much ability that once you launch it, you own it and you're now working with those capabilities. So sometimes I think we've overclassified because we believe that, you know, if I tell you about it or you know too much about it, then you can defeat it quickly or you have a way to counter it. Uh, because again, I, I can't turn as fast as I need to. I think with some of the acquisition strategies and the things we're moving forward with, with common buses, getting to digital payloads, both on the satellite and the ground system and the receiver, so we can actively respond as the enemy changes uh, to change the software on board, to include crypto, all those things as we get to that, I think that will make this a lot more resilient uh, in the ability uh, to do so uh, and to be more responsive and to be able to talk about it more because again, we have the ability to quickly upgrade the capabilities as the enemy gets a vote. The, the parts that I think uh, continue to be tough. Um, so I always ask the question, you know, everyone knows there's a B-21. Everyone knows there's a new bomber being built. It's gonna be stealth. We're gonna have all these great capabilities. And we talk about it very generically, but we don't get into the details of the B-21. Uh, and there are highly classified things on the B-21. How do we as a space domain, and it's gonna be critical when we talk about deterrence. If I can't talk about what I have to hold your capabilities at risk, then I really can't deter. So we've been working really hard on a conceal, reveal, obfuscate strategy. How are we going to talk about our capabilities? What are the things we're willing to talk about? What are we not willing to talk about? Uh, and how will that then translate into our deterrent strategies uh, and how we operate? Um, and, and I think that's going to be critical. And that gets at the heart of this classification discussion. Um, but we can't say that we're going to have capabilities to protect and defend if, if we don't then talk to you about what those defensive capabilities are. So um, that's something that's actively ongoing, but it, it's critical for us to be successful moving forward, to be able to talk about some of the future capes uh, that we are bringing online. No, I think that's great. And, and as you're talking, uh, cyber is another area that comes to mind. You know, How do you do cyber deterrence if you don't reveal what it is that you can do to an adversary if they cross the line? So it's kind of a similar uh, analogy. And your B-21 example is spot on in the context of uh, being able to get that to that level of, okay, we, we know generally what it will be able to do, but the specifics, which rightfully should be classified, uh, you know, we don't reveal those. And, and kind of that it was, I think that's very, very helpful in terms of getting us to where we need to go with uh, space systems as well. Um, well, uh, General, we've uh, come to this end, uh, come to the end of this segment of our uh, discussion because we want to spend some time opening up to uh, uh, questions from the audience. So, General Bird, thanks again for your insightful comments and uh, sharing your really valuable uh, perspectives uh, in this brave new Space Force uh, venture. Uh, before we shift to the audience, I just want to make a uh, alert to our listeners that our next event is Wednesday, uh, May 12th when the Mitchell Institute will be hosting Lieutenant General J.T. Thompson. So we hope you all can join us for that. So we're, like I said, we're going to open the session now to uh, questions from the audience. Um, this audience knows the drill. So uh, please go ahead and uh, raise your hand. And uh, when I call on you, announce who you are and uh, 
who you're with. So let's start out with uh, um, Mike Boera. Mike. Hey, good morning, General Burt, Diana. Um, great to hear your presentation this morning. Uh, I, I try to think of where we were a year ago and stuff. You really got a great grasp on it and thank you for your continued service. I did hear your, uh, your note about needing to know the enemy in the Intel space domain. I think some of the challenges that have been, that have been presented out there to, uh, to industry to help with have been on the, uh, the tactical ISR, sensor integration, data correlation and fusion and head. And so up front, I'll say my question is gonna be, how can industry, what are the things you need industry to be working towards with you to address those concerns. And I'll just throw out one, if, if you could project yourself 10 years in the future and take the lesson learned of what the, the air domain and the tactical ISR and the, and the caps, if you will, of the MQ1s, MQ9s, the, the, I think we get to a point with the space domain that everybody wants everything all the time. And, and what will that, putting my programmer hat on, how will that decimate, you know, the, the DOD budget when, it, when that kind of capability is uh, desired by the warfighter, if you will. So I'll, 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 a, lot, a lot there to digest. Primarily, it's how industry can help you. And two, how do you think you're going to be able to temper the appetite that will be out there by the COCOMs? Thank you. Over. Oh, great question, Mike. I, I think uh, first and foremost, what industry can do for us is again, getting uh, the capabilities out there that allow us just as we do in every domain to characterize the enemy. So intent, uh, pattern of life, how things operate in the domain day in and day out. And that includes not only as we know uh, from our side of the business, there's a ground element, a space element and a receiver element of the enemy's capabilities and how they operate their space systems just as there are for us. And understanding the key capabilities uh, from a targeting perspective for all three of those elements uh, that would allow a joint multi-domain response. So for example, I wanna know the cyber connectivity uh, in all those. And are there any uh, dimpies that cyber could go after? Are there various things that we would hit kinetically are there things I would take, would be better taken down in the space domain as compared to in the terrestrial domain? Where are they most vulnerable and how can we get at those? And each of those three elements have to have full target folders that allow for those multi-domain uh, interactions. So however the, the commercial entities or industry can help us start to build the capabilities to discover that data and make it uh, transparent and discoverable to all is important. To your point about uh, the appetite, I think there are a lot of things that are out there. There's data falling on the floor uh, because we're not making it transparent. We're not uh, cataloging it, uh, putting it out there in a standard data format. We talk about the unified data library a lot. There are many sources of space domain awareness data from commercial to coalition uh, to industry that are out there. How do we put that data out there and make it discoverable and then allow the system data to be able to process and execute that information. I think that's the heart of JADC2. It's the heart of everything we're talking about is how do we put an industry standard on data and make sure the data is out there and available. And then whatever tactical problem you're trying to solve, you then as the operator on the console can, can pull that data as you need to solve your tactical problem. I think that's how you kind of work the appetite discussion is it's all out there. I just now have to figure out what kinds of data do I want to pull in to solve the, the tactical problems I'm solving. 
Um, and again, I think that's the heart of JADC2 air battle management system and the things we're trying to do with space domain awareness uh, for the future uh, and how we automate and, and leverage digital capabilities. Um, the last thing I would say to industry that we need, again, this data discussion and making things discoverable and in a uh, formatted fashion so that it can all be leveraged is also making it, uh, having the capability to be multi-levels of classification. So we talked about the classification problem. Uh, I think as we bring on Department of Commerce and they work, start to work the traffic management, space traffic management, they're going to need to be at a certain classification level. And how do we share everything to them as we do on spacetrack.org? But how do you get to different levels of partnership and sharing of data, having multi-level layered securities uh, on all these data systems and how we share intelligence uh, is going to be important. And how do you take something that's at a high level, strip out the key things and push it down at a lower level to both our coalition and industry partners uh, is going to be critical. So those multi-layer security systems uh, are going to be just as important uh, for the space domain as they are in all the other domains and how we execute and prosecute in a coalition and with the other partners would be uh, the things I would offer you. Okay, let's uh, move on to uh, Teresa Hitchens. Hi, um, thank you, uh, General Burt, for doing this today. Um, I have a process question, and it has to do with space-based ISR and the role that NGA plays in disseminating and distributing the data from, say, remote sensing um, satellites, which includes um, commercial re remote sensing and, and uh, you know, IC assets. And how that fits in with what you're doing at Space Command, and I know this is primarily over at the other shop, um, but, but how it fits in and how it fits in with JADC2, because it seems to me that that creates yet another step in this chain of information being able to flow from sensors to shooters that might be a problem in a rapid response environment. And how do you, how, do, how does that work for you right now? And how can you make that not be a roadblock? Because combatant commanders in the past have said that this is a roadblock for them. And they have been probably since Desert Storm complaining that they don't have access when they need it to space-based ISR. Thanks. No, Teresa, great question. Um, <clears throat> and I do agree. So first of all, we have a lot of relationships uh, with NGA when it comes to having representatives both at the combatant command level, as well as at both of the op centers, both here at CIFSIC, uh, as well as at the National Space Defense Center in Colorado Springs. We both have NGA reps. Uh, I would say the National Space Defense Center has the lion's share of the intelligence community reps, because again, it's a US only uh, uh, center that's working all of those interplay with both the National Reconnaissance Office, NGA, uh, all the various intelligence elements are there and represented on that ops floor and providing all the most high end intelligence capabilities to the protect and defend mission. Uh, we then share that data with us uh, as we need to work through that, as I mentioned earlier, when I have a defender or when I'm alone and unafraid, how that information is passed one to the other. Uh, each of the centers has their own intelligence elements uh, again, that's working the targeteering and the intel that's required for each of our operations to work, uh, both with the combatant commander uh, and in-house. Um, that question is probably better asked to General Lauterbach as she is working through the architecture of the National Space Intelligence Center uh, and how she is setting up the organized training equipped for the intel infrastructure that will support space uh, or for uh, Brigadier General Gagnon, who is the J-2 at U.S. Space Command, and how we continue to orchestrate that. NGA are great partners. We, we have all, like I said, their relationships. 
uh, the exchange officers and the data is flowing. I have to this point, couldn't tell you there's a, a problem or a seam where we're not getting the data that we need. Uh, I think on the space side, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the assets and the capabilities to collect in the space domain are just very nascent. And we are just now putting those requirements on the table and making sure that capabilities are being developed uh, to deliver us those capabilities, that tactical ISR, as you talked about. Uh, but, but I have not seen that problem. But those two experts, uh, General Gagnon or General Lauterbach may, but uh, from my perspective here at CIFSIC, I'm getting everything I need from NGA and that relationship is very tight. Thank you. Okay, Michael Robbins. Hey, good afternoon. Good morning, ma'am. Uh, thanks again. Always learn stuff from you when I when I get a chance to talk with you. Uh, first off, uh, on this, the importance of cyber in protecting our space systems and, and how we're going to move forward in that. And part of that is what are we doing to move to the as-a-service model so that we can truly free up uh, warfighters to protect and defend those space systems, uh, you know, in the as-a-service, not just for you know, our admin networks, but also our mission networks. Thank you, ma'am. Groot, thanks for that question, Groot. I appreciate it. Um, the thing we work uh, the hardest right now, so on the service side, you know, we've stood up things that are equivalent to wings called deltas. Uh, we have Delta-6, which is cyber-focused, and they have uh, detachments across each of our weapon systems uh, working through that mission defense team work. Uh, so their goal is to understand the key cyber terrain for each of those weapon systems and how best to put the right tools and techniques working with Cyber Command on each of those weapon systems uh, to monitor every day. Obviously, on the acquisition side of the business, we have quite a few cyber folks uh, that are at SMC, soon to be Space Systems Command, that are baking in the cyber capabilities that we need from the beginning uh, on any of our new capabilities moving forward. I think your question uh, really starts to get after where we see ourselves as the United States Space Force and should we have our own cyber mission teams. Uh, who best to do cyber attack or to counterattack space capabilities of the enemy than those who do it day in and day out and understand how we do space business to then turn that uh, against uh, and defend and do cyber protection teams. So right now we just do the mission defense teams. I think there is discussions ongoing uh, with Cyber Command uh, and with the Air Force of how we start to build out our own cyber mission teams in the future. Uh, but it's definitely something uh, that we see and we would like to be able as the service component uh, to U.S. Space Command to provide that space expertise. As you know, we took uh, both 17 Deltas and three Deltas from the Air Force into the Space Force with us because they were critical to the mission. I cannot do my mission day in and day out without cyber. I have to be able to communicate to the satellite either via ground network uh, or through a satellite communications link uh, that are interconnected. So it is our soft underbelly. So we recognize the importance of it every day our SCADA networks and power uh, and HVAC are critical to mission every day as well from our employed in place, uh, fighting from our installations. So all those things are important, which is why it leads us to, we need our own cyber protection teams. We need our own cyber mission teams uh, within the Space Force. It's where does that rack and stack as we grow and continue to build? Uh, I would see that coming in the next three to five years would be my, my thoughts on that, depending on how we get a resource to do it, but it's absolutely imperative because again, we cannot do our mission without cyber. Hey, that's a great answer. And I would just add to everyone at Mitchell Institute's working to host a space power forum later this summer with the cyber Delta commander, as well as a few other Delta commanders and uh, more on that uh, uh, coming. So last question to Frank Wolf. 
Yeah, uh, hi, General. Uh, appreciate this. Um, I just wanted to ask on uh, space domain awareness and uh, sort of providing a near synoptic or full coverage of uh, space orbits, LEO, MEO, GEO, et cetera. Um, what, from your seat, where, what do you see the, the promising uh, uh, systems as so far? Uh, there's obviously a variety of efforts, but um, as I take it, there's some uh, concern in industry that uh, for example, using Starlink, which is obviously a communication satellite, but there's there's not enough stability, for example, for for an optical sensor possibly to go on Starlink to provide this kind of uh, space domain awareness. So I just wanted to ask in terms of the space domain air for efforts you've seen, uh, Silent Barker, or whatever else, that that's that's there's sort of the ongoing efforts. What what do you see as sort of the the prom most promising and um, in terms of uh, where where where, where, where we are likely to be in terms of a near synoptic versus soda straw coverage of uh, you know, sort of the full coverage of space orbit and if that's really needed. No, I, I think uh, that's a great question, Frank. Uh, I think one of the things we're looking at across the board is how do we use traditional and non-traditional sensors uh, to do space domain awareness? I, I think there are many radars that are out there that do missile defense and other capabilities. How do we employ those? How do we take uh, ground-based capabilities and take them to the next level? How do we share data uh, machine to machine with our commercial partners, as well as our own military? How do, I, how do I ingest all the blue element sets versus putting energy on any of those capabilities uh, such that I then focus on the things I really want to, to surveil that are things that are in question or hostile, could be potentially hostile. Uh, the, the biggest limb fact I would tell you that we're facing and SMC is getting after it is with the delivery of the SPADOC replacement uh, that's called ATLAS and our ability to get to that digital side in space domain awareness. Right now we're working on a tool SPADOC that both General Raymond and General Dickinson have been working years to replace <clears throat> that's built on a Cold War mentality and a very uh, limited set of data to bring in to do space domain awareness. As we get to ATLAS, it's going to allow us to do more apps do more digital work to then take in all those non-traditional data sources, machine to machine, uh, and allow for uh, the calculations of that. Uh, Mr. Gordon Korniak leads a pivot space domain awareness, and it looks directly at how can we leverage commercial capability, coalition capability, uh, and processing uh, to automate this. So we really put the brain power on what really space domain awareness is, which is the foundation for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. So as we move toward that, <clears throat> We're supposed to deliver that in the spring of 2022. Uh, I think you're going to see huge leaps uh, in our space domain awareness capability and really where we need to get to uh, for the next uh, elements. As far as sensors that play in that space domain awareness, I think you need a mix of all for resiliency, uh, not only uh, ground-based uh, opticals, radars, uh, but as well as on orbit. Uh, what do we need in the domain uh, to act as those capabilities? So again, I understand the stability question you had about Starlink. Uh, again, are there ride shares in other domains that are less um, that are less uh, perturbed by the environment or the orbit itself? Uh, but I think we're going to have to have a layered defense and layered sensors uh, in order to best characterize the domain across the board. And again, that's going to be a coalition, commercial, civil uh, working together in that multi-tiered, multi-classification um, level for both from Department of Commerce for space traffic management, all the way through how would we fight and win a war that could extend into space. Uh, with the right space picture for space domain awareness. Thank you. Well, folks, we've come to the end of uh, this uh, Space Power Forum, and I want to give a big thanks again to uh, General Burt, 
to you, uh, Deanna, and to our audience from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute and our new Space Power Advantage Research Center headed by Matt Donovan. Have a great aerospace power kind of day. See you.